When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. We've just come out of a rich month for big, ambitious, emotional movies, all racing to qualify for the 95th Annual Academy Awards. And now, here we are in January, traditionally a weak month for theatrical attendance, and therefore the dumping ground for movies that the major studios didn't have much faith in. That's changed a lot with the rise of streaming services, though, since they aren't as beholden to the traditional rhythms of theater going. And lately, January has become a month for kind of oddball releases that are trying to take advantage of the relative lack of theatrical competition at the beginning of the year, and of moviegoers' hunger for something lighter after six weeks of prestige releases, or maybe something darker after months of Christmas-themed feel-good entertainment. Do y'all think that's an accurate summary? Like, do you do you find yourself craving any kind of specific movie in January after the holidays wrap up? I actually watch only feel-good Christmas content in January just to be perverse about it. <laughs> That is really perverse. <laughs> as, as somebody who spent nearly two weeks uh, with my mom and sister, with my mom just having the Hallmark Channel on in the background perpetually, uh, like every waking hour, I, I was exposed to a lot of that this year. And I can't imagine. I love this time of year. This time, you, it, you describe it correctly. And as far as me craving a specific kind of movie, I like schlock. I like Drek. <laughs> I like movies that I, I, I like auteur misfires. Those are those are my favorites, the ones that were, were, were supposed to be awards contenders. But for some reason, whether they were like t- either too arty or too screwed up, like they get released and they're really interesting. Like this is this is a good time of the year. Uh, not a lot of things. Or they're, that really... or they're not. I mean, there's also there's also the things that just don't work too. I mean, I think which is honestly you're romanticizing a little bit. Uh, no, because, but like, look, okay, uh, think of this. Look, what about what about that uh, Alan Parker death penalty movie? You remember that Kate Winslet in, in, in it? Oh, of course. Oh, produced by Nicolas Cage. Of course, I remember that movie. Uh, the the <laughs> Life of David Gale. Yeah, like terrible film, but I mean, man, riveting to watch. How bad uh, uh, <laughs> just to see that big a train wreck happen in the middle of winter. I think there's been it has been a really a reliable source for PG thirteen horror for at least a decade at this point. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's pretty boring too. That can get boring. No, there's no question. It it can get boring, but it also, I mean, for me, it just always kind of feels like a relief from from the holiday spirit being forced at gunpoint to experience the holiday spirit for a month. I come out of it, and I want. I also want schlock and drek and ridiculousness. 
Or, you know, maybe just something, you know, kind of easygoing after six weeks of of pummeling prestige movies that are inevitably 50% of them are about, you know, people navigating cultural oppression or personal oppression or, you know, the rape and mutilation and loss and misery or revisiting their tragic childhoods or whatever it is. I'm just ready for something light. And guess what we're getting this week? <laughs> whatever we whatever we personally want in January, it's definitely become a traditional month for for horror, and 2023 is definitely no exception. Genevieve, since you love horror movies above all other genres, I have left it to you to let the listeners in on what we're up to with this episode. Okay. The new horror movie, Megan, or M3GAN, if you're nasty, is the latest over-the-top horror comedy from writers James Wan and Akila Cooper, the writers of 2021's Ridiculously Joyous Malignant. Wan made his name as a director with small horror films like Saw and Insidious, then worked up to bigger, pricier blockbusters like Aquaman and The Conjuring movies. But with Malignant, he and Cooper went in a sillier direction, playing the action straight-faced, but making the details of the story so ridiculous and excessive that it was clear audiences were meant to laugh. That's the case again with M3GAN, directed by Housebound's Gerard Johnstone. The gist here is that a programmer at a toy company makes a robot companion for her grieving orphan niece, but someone left the switch on Megan's back on the evil setting, so she turns dangerous really quickly. The movie is full of conscious, obvious throwbacks to other movies, particularly The Terminator in 2001, A Space Odyssey. But the really obvious touchpoint here is Child's Play, the 1988 horror story about an evil possessed doll that gave the world Chucky, a franchise-helming villain who's achieved nearly as much cultural recognition as all-time slasher villains like Freddy or Jason. We figured Megan was a good excuse to go back to the evil doll movie well and take on a classic of the genre. So this week, we'll look back on a horror classic about ritual magic and bad toys to get your children for the birthdays. And next week, we're going to look at Chucky's high-tech modern AI equivalent, who embodies a completely different set of cultural anxieties, but still expresses them in pretty much the exact same way. Please stay with us. Everyone has a birthday they'll always remember. Can we open my presents now, Mommy? He's something, isn't he? This is Andy's. Time for bed, Andy. Good night, baby. Good night, Aunt Maggie. Good night, Chucky. Everyone knows most accidents happen at home. How did that happen? This is no accident. Andy! I'm Detective Mike Norris. Homicide. Andy! Miss Peterson's dead, Miss Barclays. She fell from the kitchen window. Someone's moved in with the Barclay family. And so has terror. Here's something that would have been immediately obvious to anybody seeing Child's Play for the first time back in 1988 that likely doesn't land for people encountering it or any of its many sequels and reboots today. When writer Don Mancini first wrote the movie he would later spin into a lifelong career, he was mostly thinking about Cabbage Patch Kids. For people who weren't tuned into toy trends in the 1980s, Cabbage Patch Kids were a must-have doll, a genuine marketing phenomenon that generated literally billions of dollars and had parents physically fighting over the dolls in stores. 
Part of the idea behind these chubby-faced, floppy, arguably pretty ugly dolls was that you didn't quote-unquote buy them, you adopted them. So like American Girl dolls today, kids were encouraged to see them not just as toys, but as their own siblings or even babies, objects they had a close personal relationship with. Mancini found that element of the marketing, the idea of appealing directly to children's sense of emotional connection with their toys, fairly sinister, and he extrapolated it out into the idea of a doll that's sinister and evil as well. There are other influences in addition. In interviews, Mancini has discussed how Joe Dante's gremlins impressed him with the level of articulation and expression that animatronics were capable of in the 1980s. He saw how that technology could be used to create a doll antagonist that was scarier and more believable than previous evil doll movies had allowed for. In 1984's Nightmare on Elm Street, with its nasty, taunting villain Freddy and his personal grudges against his victim, also drew Mancini. He sat down and scripted a movie with a title that we still all recognize and remember today, Batteries Not Included. Then he found out Steven Spielberg was already working on a movie under that title. Oops. Mancini's original version of Child's Play was even more tied to parental anxieties and childhood anger than the version we now see on screen. His original draft lacked a serial killer in need of a new body or any hint of demonic influence. In the first iteration of the story, Chucky was a way for his child protagonist to act out his darkest impulses through a doll who attacked his enemies while the child slept. But when the script was picked up and Hollywood veterans started to get involved, including Fright Night director Tom Holland, Mancini was backburnered a bit while a new team tried to figure out how to make the child character more sympathetic and less of, well, a secret psychotic murderer. Mancini has said he never loved the inclusion of voodoo as a way to bring Chucky to life, but once it was added to the mythos, Chucky writers in the future were stuck with it over the course of six sequels, a 2019 reboot, and a new TV show that just wrapped its second season. That sprawling franchise has kept other elements on board. Mancini has been heavily involved in most of the series iterations, apart from the 2019 version that was made without his blessing. Brad Dorif has returned many times over to voice Chucky, or rather the dead serial killer Charles Lee Ray, who inhabits Chucky's plastic body and gives him his murderous outlook. And while the technology that made Chucky has evolved to make him more convincing and more horrific with every new outing, he's kept his signature recognizable look. But like so many of the other horror franchises that have hung on for decades, the Chucky series has evolved through tones and audiences. Later movies turned the character into a camp comedy figure or a queer icon. The series took on meta-self-awareness in the era of Scream and became self-referential comedy once it had been around long enough as a series to have its own visual and narrative language. It evolved with the times, unlike the Cabbage Patch Kids fad, which eventually gave way to other marketing gimmicks and other must-have toys. It's funny that what started out as a dark, opportunistic satire of one specific 80s product has so thoroughly surpassed and supplanted that product in American culture. But then again, maybe that's because satire has an enduring value that goes past the moment that spawns it. It steps beyond the specifics of an era, and it reminds us of the impulses that keep driving us and link the small obsessions of one moment in history to the next, and the next, and the next. You got me into this, you get me out. I can't do that, Chucky. Why not? Because you're an abomination. An outrage against nature! You perverted everything I've taught you and used it for evil, and you have to be stopped. You know, I thought something like this might happen. That's why I prepared for it. What are you talking about? Your own personal mojo, Doc. Okay, y'all. One thing uh, we've talked about just forever at the AV Club and the Dissolve is how horror movies are reflections of the anxiety of their era. Uh, there are a bunch of anxieties on the table in Child's Play, 
one of them just being the obsession over Cabbage Patch Kids, but none of them really about the fear of dolls stabbing us. I, what, what do you see this movie as really being about? I guess it's it's turns out if you look at it as a horror film from the mom's perspective or from the kid's perspective, and I think it's kind of easier to read as a horror film from the mother's perspective because it is about you know what are these these things that that our kids are clamoring for that we're going to give them. You know, I can't be there. I can buy my kid a toy, which of course will turn up even more uh, explicitly in, in the other film we're talking about in, in these episodes. But you know, I just I think there's never really you never really get that poltergeist clown under the bed moment with uh, Andy, uh, who's never really afraid of Chucky until Chucky turns overtly murderous. I don't think there's necessarily a fear of dolls at work here, which which I think is a different... There's certainly no shortage of horror movies that try to tap into that. This is a little different. I really like that as an observation. It, it hadn't really occurred to me, and you know, obviously maybe I see this differently as somebody who isn't a parent, but the the fear of that kind of obsessive need for one specific toy here kind of turns into the obsessive need for a specific toy that is very clearly not doing the child any good. And that just feels like something that parents maybe do go through in terms of, again, we see this more clearly in Megan with a, a kid attached to before anything else happens, just her tablet and the games on it. And I, I think that maybe is a little universal is like the inability to relate to exactly the set of needs that like, for instance, attaches a kid to the one blanket that they have to have or the one like stuffy that they have to have and will absolutely freak out if they leave somewhere. That said, there is something to the the humanistic quality of dolls that adds sort of another layer to that, you know, as far as kids' relationship to them, sort of as a, a quote-unquote friend. And it's, you know, not lost on me that both of the, the kids in both of these movies are, are only children of single parents or single parent figures who have no other kids in their life you know so the the doll kind of functions like at least within these stories as a substitute friend or sibling the cabbage patch kid thing is an important aspect of this and i speak from uh experience i have visited the cabbage patch <laughs> uh kids uh headquarters in cleveland georgia i went there when i in the in the 80s uh with, with my little sister who at the time was into uh, into cabbage patch dolls I, i've seen the cabbages from which the dolls <laughs> uh, sp spring, I think. I'm not really sure. You you shouldn't call it the factory, Scott. It's the orphanage. It's the orphanage, right. That's just true. Or the cabbage patch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Having recently watched for an article I wrote, uh, the Cabbage Patch Kids Christmas special, there's a whole elaborate Cabbage Patch Kids mythology about the Cabbage yeah. Patch. And yeah, I, well, I, I can't get into it now. It's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but I think in terms of what, it, just the genesis of the movie, I think one is like, this is like, the end of the 80s the end of the slasher era or the, or, and i think there was just a need to like think about what can we do now <laughs> just like it's a real simple basic need of just like where can this go uh because we've given adults different types of adults uh knives uh well, how, well, we, how can we <laughs> if we do can we can we do it with a doll and then i think i think there may be something there about hostility towards this particular craze i mean the, the, this expensive thing that you have to buy for your kids i mean you, it's manifested on more than just this movie i've seen other references to uh you know it's not a, not a good thing if you're a parent if you have to spend that much or you have to go that to that distance to get something that doesn't really seem to be wor you're worth that value and um and i think i think there's a little bit of adult you know hostility towards these things that are sort of, sort of channeled through 
child's play as well. I mean, there's a real mean streak in this movie in ways that have nothing to do with Chucky. There's there's certainly a mean streak there as well. But in terms of how it looks at, for instance, child psychologists or urban blight or the mm. homeless or or department store managers <laughs> or department store managers or the relationship between the police and, and people who need police aid. Like, it doesn't look a whole lot like our anxieties about some of those things do in film today. A lot of it seems, if not era specific, just at least heavily influenced by its era. But there's a kind of a, a bitter cynicism to a lot of the relationships and and interactions in this movie that I find really kind of help give it its edge. You know, it, it is in a way one of those I'm being menaced by something and no one will believe me. And that makes it even more isolating and terrifying kind of thing. At the same time, my son's doll has come to life and is stabbing people. You can see why people don't believe that. You can see why the cops don't want to help the the victim here because she sounds like a lunatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, again, I think is is just a particularly mean little twist in all of this. That's kind of the genius of it, though. That, that's the thing I really I mean, there's a moment where Andy you know, describes what's happening to his mom and then and she doesn't believe him. And, she, and then he says, yeah, yeah, Chucky was right. She, he said you wouldn't believe me. So uh, there's that part of it, too. I, I mean, I, one of the things and I think and I like the fact that Chucky doesn't care, like he doesn't really care to pretend to be a doll. He hates being a doll. He hates being in that trapped in that frame. And he just immediately creates mischief. It's he's, there's something just very base and in, in, in human and kind of like, you know, he's not a psycho killer, like, like Jason or Freddie. He's there. He's just kind of a, he's, he's a low life. He's just a low life. <laughs> you know, and I think there's something kind of refreshing about that. There's something, he's just kind of a, kind of a common hood. Um, with with I some I don't with know, murders though, man, you're letting the Lakeshore Strangler off the hook awfully easily. Yeah, here. <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, we we have every reason to to believe that he's, as they call him, a serial killer, and we don't know a ton about why the Lakeshore Strangler murders people. But boy, he sure does go for strangling very quickly and very easily. <laughs> he, likes, he, likes to, he likes to settle scores, though. He's a score settler. He seems to have like a, a hair a hair trigger temper. He does, you know, at, at least in in Chucky form. And his reaction to a perceived slight is to kill someone, which is certainly you know poor behavior. Um, it, it, <laughs> is, it, is, it is maybe it is maybe not a compulsion, you know, the way that we sometimes think of serial killers. But um, not a good guy by any means. <laughs> I, I, I think it goes a little beyond mischief. <laughs> That's true. It, it it gave me the giggles to have you say it's bad behavior, but I see. <laughs> I see what you mean there about he he doesn't go after Andy's mom out of any sort of, you know, fetishistic like or voyeuristic sense, which is what we we saw so much of that in uh, like 80s thrillers. He's just mad when she figures him out and, and threatens him like he's he's just got the uh, kind of the abuser, like, <laughs> how dare you threaten me, bitch kind of thing going on. And it does seem like a very different thing. Would you describe him as achingly human? <laughs> no i just i do I, I i i just think like he's not he's not the type of guy that you're that that donald pleasance is gonna be get chills out of you know what i mean like like he's mm-hmm. not he's not that he's not a michael myers type he, he's a talker he's hot tempered you know I, you know and i think maybe that some of that is being also fed by the sequels as well which which kind of 
you know, delve a little bit more into camp comedy, but, but I think there's something that's, he's a little bit set apart. There's something a little more grounded about this maniac than there is other maniacs from the, of the era. I certainly agree that he is a, a, a hoodlum, which is a word we don't use very much anymore, except maybe in conjunction with words like gunsel. But I, I just I'm not sure that I agree that he dislikes being a doll like he he gets really angry when he finds out that he's slowly turning human and thus he's not going to live forever. Like he I think he really enjoys being able to like hold still and have people completely overlook him and he can get away with whatever he wants. He explicitly says he doesn't want to be a like he when he when he confronts the dude who taught him all of the rituals that turn him into a doll. He was like, you know, when he was saying he was going to turn human, he was like, I can't be this guy. I can't be stuck in here. You got to get me out of here. Like he want, he does not want to be. He wants to get in, himself in a in a uh, in an actual body as ASAP. Yeah, but again, that's because he's turning human. It's because he sees a future where he's a a four foot tall, stubby human with terrible hair, as opposed to a like completely overlookable doll. Like, I just don't think that there's any sign that he hates being a doll or that he hates pretending to be a doll. It kind of seems to me like he was getting off on it. That he was the ability to deceive Andy and to like you know sneak up on his. Uh, his old partner and uh, this detective and just be completely overlooked. I, it seemed to me like he was really enjoying, as you say, the mischief of that, the, the just kind of like gleeful ability to get away with things and then just like sit still and watch somebody else be blamed for him. I can definitely see that read. I didn't have that read myself, although listening to you talk it out, yeah, it makes sense. I, but I just took it more as like I think how Scott did is he saw the doll as sort of like a temporary vessel until he could find something better. Like it wasn't like he chose this doll, you know, it was what was there and it was his last resort. So it was either going to be a doll or a big wheel. And there was, and I, <laughs> <laughs> Boy, this, the last, uh, however many decades of uh, horror would be very different if he put himself in a big wheel and the movie was like wheelie or something like that. What was that killer tire movie? We yeah, would have gotten that Quentin, much earlier. I was going to say that it was going to be a Quentin Duplo <laughs> f- film. This is, Rubber is the name of that movie. Um, yeah. I think one thing I, I will say, and I, I've been something I've been wanting to, to point out that is present in Child's Play that I wish were present in in movies today are just explosions. There are two <laughs> yes, explosions in the film. Explosions. The toy store and then and then the abandoned building that are just so like almost just ma- just massive pyrotechnics it's like man why why don't we see that now like that's awesome to watch like and blow more just subtle location up. photography too i mean on, on the audio commentary uh tom holland whoever's interviewing tom holland says you do a great job with all this location photography He's like yeah you can't they won't pay for that now studios used to pay for that kind of thing also the i do love that the exterior which is also on the poster or some posters is a building we drive by all the time in old town right you've seen andy and his mom's apartment building a, a billion times yeah, as Chicago residents, it's certainly fun to see downtown Chicago portrayed as just a, a no man's zone of crime and, <laughs> and wretched scum and villainy. Like it, I, I love that there was like homeless criminals outside Carson Prescott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just that, like Chicago, just like the Chicago I know. 
It reminds me a lot of uh, watching movies set around uh, Times Square, like mm-hmm. shot in the 1970s. You know, the idea that it's just this like seedy area full of uh, like porn theaters and and low lives. And you compare it with what it looks like today. It's just it's interesting to see it on film. Uh, there there was it. a lot in this movie that I didn't recognize, like you're under the L tracks a lot, uh, but I had a hard time placing exactly where we were in space a lot of the time. Oh, they, well, I mean, they re- made reference to the Toy Story being on Wabash. Oh, yeah. And uh, Andy and Chucky take the L to the 47th Street stop, which is where I'm assuming that house that explodes was or near there anyway. Yeah, that was a fun time just because they specifically identified it uh, mm-hmm. and you, you kind of had an anchor for a place and time. But uh, leaving aside what, what it's like to watch this movie specifically as a Chicagoan, like going a little bigger and broader. I feel like there are moments in this movie that are creepy, maybe, but I'm not sure it's a scary movie today. Mm. Uh, Genevieve, you're, I, I think, <laughs> I the person maybe to most sensitive. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering, like, does this movie play as a scary movie today? Nah, no. I mean, I I kind of knew. I had never sat down to watch Child's Play beginning and end, but I had certainly seen bits and pieces of it uh, over the course of my life, and not to mention seen it referenced countless times in, in other pop culture. So it follows horror narrative beats for sure, but it just doesn't have a lot of what I personally find scary in horror, which is sort of like sustained tension, jump scares, and excessive gore. You know, this is this is a pretty cuddly, you know, horror film as, as it all goes. And as I've said multiple times on, on this podcast uh, when discussing my horror aversions, generally, if there's a strong strain of comedy, it's going to make it much, much easier for me to take a, a horror film. Uh, and that is certainly the case here, even though the comedy is uh, dark more, more than, than laugh out loud. I guess I wound up wondering how much of the comedy is intentional. Like the sequence where Chucky is uh, attempting to stab Chris Sarandon in the car felt so much like a sequence from Army of Darkness, like the the sequence that we specifically called out with all the hands playing like with the uh, knife Ash's going face up through through the seat. Yeah, the knife going up through the seat mm-hmm. and uh, Sarandon just like bouncing into the air, like with his eyes really big because his his testicles were just threatened, <laughs> but also just kind of throwing himself around, making really goofy faces like that seemed pretty silly but how uh, much of this movie do you <laughs> wait wait what was that noise Keith? no i, I uh, what is what is the question here <laughs> i think a lot it's clearly being played for comedy you know i mean i mean tom holland is 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 a fun filmmaker most of the time I mean, fright night is was the one he did before this which was was just really uh quite funny uh, I'm sorry. He did do Fatal Beauty, which was not a horror film uh, between this, uh, which I have not seen. But but I and maybe it's no fun at all. But I know I know Fright Night is 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 a delight. I mean, I think there's definitely you know some jokes, quote unquote jokes, uh, written in like one right right from the beginning. Uh, the you know when we're first meeting Andy on his birthday and he's eyeing the big uh, good guy sized present and it turns out to be full of clothes. <laughs> uh, Why? Why the gigantic box for a, a few clothes? I, yeah. That just seemed mean. Yeah. Oh, and, and when uh, her friend says that she thinks she dated the peddler, 
that's a joke, you know. Yeah, but uh, oh, they, they really. Know, st- I, I will say uh, there is a fair amount of humor that like kind of amounts to Chucky calling women a bitch, which I don't always love as a punchline, uh, you know. But uh, I think you maybe just chalk it up to the times. It works. I think once. Freddy Krueger was a bad influence on Chucky. <laughs> Some combination of the times and kind of the the universal humor of something with a cute face and a foul mouth. That's I mean, and that's that's still a source of humor today. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. kids swearing or things that look like kids swearing. I think it's meant to be a really ugly word in Chucky's mouth that kind of disagrees with his exterior and and emphasizes how foul he is as a an individual as opposed to being just like the casual way that of course you refer to a, a woman i think it's funny when andy says it when, when uh, his babysitter his oh, yeah. mom's friend goes out the window and it's like well chucky said she was a bleep who had it coming i was like i think the way, the way he, he doesn't really know what he's saying Mm-hmm. And and I think that is an example of it. Uh, that's that's one point where that works really really well. Uh, you know, I, you know, it's not a. It, it, I I don't think it is trying it, to its credit. I mean, later, I mean, the later films we get extremely. Cam- I mean, once once you get uh, you know starting with Bride of Chucky, it takes a very strong turn toward comedy. I think this is a horror film with elements of comedy in it, and I think everything. I think that gets reversed starting with Bride of Chucky. But it wants for it to a good time, and I think there's kind of a. I think the the film has its eyes open to you know the look of the city, the, the way that this mother and son live, the 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 idea, you know being sort of cash strapped, not being able to afford everything, the 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 boy making making his mother, you know, uh, a pretty horrifying looking breakfast. I mean, there's something <laughs> I, I like these. I like the kind of grounded elements of this the uh, of this film, uh, which I don't think are necessary or or expected really but but kind of give it a little bit of an extra edge one thing that does land for me as horror in the film that i thought was just really interesting by contrast with some of its goofier elements is when the presumably child psychologist uh sees andy shaking chucky in the police precinct and and screaming at him and he decides to interpret him as like a disturbed child. He's like, all right, you know, I've, I've seen enough. We need to take him for observation. And then when you next see him, it's very clear that he's in a an institution. There are bars on the window. There's nothing comforting whatsoever. Nobody's making any attempt to like engage with him or help him. And when he starts screaming about Chucky coming to kill him, he breaks down weeping and nobody cares. There's no comfort again there's no attempt to engage him also the child actor in that sequence looks terrified and like he's really bawling uh it's a really convincing sequence compared to some of the acting in this movie and just the overall assumption that like you know of course you take a disturbed child and put him put him in a cold metal cage and ignore him (laughs) I, i think just really landed for me as like when Chucky's running around with a knife, I didn't really necessarily feel the child endangerment, but but that treatment of what they are interpreting as a disturbed child, uh, I found kind of terrifying and, and horrifying. Chicago, man, it's a tough town. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's the way that's the way things were done in the eighties. You, you, you just put kids in the. You know, I will say there. I think there is actually one really effectively staged and fairly scary scene in the movie, which is when Andy's mom discovers that chucky has no batteries i feel like in the way that stage Mm -hmm. is really good you can see chucky in the background just being a doll and then in the foreground you've got andy's mom shaking this 
looking at Chucky's original box and shaking it and out drop the batteries. And then it's like, oh, okay. Then it kind of clicks. And then I think that's kind of a classic suspense moment that I think that is well handled and well executed all the way through. Batteries not included, right? That's right. (laughs) I mostly agree with you there, Scott. But the the moment where she drops Chucky and he disappears under the couch and she has to Mm. kind of slowly crawl under that was staged so much like the similar sequence in Poltergeist, which was, you know, six years earlier and the uh, in like interviews about uh, Child's Play and, and the making of Child's Play. Like the filmmakers have made it very clear that they'd seen Poltergeist, even if they don't necessarily credit it as a, an influence in the way they credit some of the other things that they're they're talking about here. But that whole sequence just played a little too much for me, like aping that sequence from Poltergeist, which is for me one of the all-time scariest things on film. All right, evil clown dolls, man. Yeah, I mean, it kind of gets back to what I was saying before. I, I don't think this is really a movie about being scared of dolls. I think, I think it's, 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 and I don't think it's particularly scary. Anyway, nothing against it. I, I'm very fond of this movie, but you know, there's so many creepy doll movies, and this is this is a movie with a killer doll that doesn't really feel like one of them. I do feel like there are a lot of films that drew from this in some way, and there are a lot of films that it's drawing on. I, one of the things that really felt like an echo of Chucky to me here that isn't an evil doll movie at all, but still has some of the same tonal elements was Candyman in the 90s. I just I feel so much echo here between Andy's mom and the the female protagonist of Candyman as just kind of a hapless white woman like moving through these spaces that are are dominated by people of color moving through these like threatening urban landscapes that are just sort of portrayed as as hellscapes because they're urban and people of color live there there's kind of just a lot of resonance there that again kind of tells us how people saw the world uh in in the 1980s but with Candyman, it's it's certainly about that and turning yeah. it on its head in in some some ways. Another Chicago movie we should point out, uh, where this yes, kind of, of just course. buys into it, like like yeah, and then a whole the whole voodoo thing is like ooh, we really weren't uh, really weren't taking some things into consideration there, <laughs> were you? I mean, um, uh, this is obviously you blame the uh, source material on this as well, but Holland also directed an adaptation of Stephen King's Thinner, which was. Uh, is uh not 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 the kindest depiction of, of roma people uh if you'll recall correctly um but anyway uh, well, i don't i don't recall <laughs> thinner thinner is i I'm not even i haven't even seen thinner and i'm kind of a completist on these things so this is reputation is so bad but um but i candy man i i think is kind of its own thing i mean because I, I feel like it's a, a a pretty thoughtful film and a, and a film that that is quite resonant when you're talking about the history of Chicago and the divisions within it, the racial divisions within Chicago. I think it's really very conscious of that and, and draws from, you know, it's urban myth is really drawn consciously from that. It, something like child's play is a little bit more in line with the thoughtlessness that was really common in the eighties. I have a theory that I should probably draw work, work on someday for the reveal about how much Hollywood films of that era just contributed to racist notions of city life. I mean, like, you know, some little gag that's played for laughs in a movie like Vacation, where he gets lost in the inner city of uh, St. Louis and has all of his hubcaps stolen. I mean, this kind of stuff, you know, I mean, if you don't live in the city, gives you this impression of the way things are. And I, I mean, that stuff is just all over the 80s. I mean, it's what urban means. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I mean, Child's Play is, 
it's guilty of it, but it, it's not the most guilty <laughs> of it. I mean, there, there are plenty that are worse. No, no, I agree with you. It's just buying into stereotypes that felt ubiquitous, particularly in film at that time. Like just the basic understanding that, of course, the downtown of a city is a filthy hellscape that is not inhabited at night, where a cop would say, like, no, no, you shouldn't, you don't go down there at this time of night, like in a panicked tone of voice. You know, this is this is a place that I've wandered around by myself uh, a, a great deal late at night and without ever feeling threatened and just having it being presented as, as hell on earth. I agree that Candyman is a much more thoughtful examination that, that is expressly about this kind of thing. But I just I really wonder if some of the, the narrative echoes like at the moment where Andy's mom walks into the Strangler's apartment and sees all of these paintings on the wall reflecting his obsession with Santeria. That feels just so much like the protagonist in uh, Candyman exploring a similar building, also full of of urban art, also just completely out of her league and not really knowing what she's seeing. It's just that in Candyman, it's there for a reason. It's it's thought through. It's expressing something. And here it's just sort of the idea of like, oh, and a nice white lady from a nice part of town is being exposed to scary stuff. For sure. I mean, I, I, the defense I would just make of the film broadly is that at least she's not coming from some place of immense privilege. I mean, this is somebody who is where, where the film just begins with her just not being able to afford this thing that her kid wants for her his birthday, not getting time off to even celebrate his birthday. I think there's I think at least it is acknowledging certain reality, economic realities, uh, certain degrees of hardship, you know, it, which is quite uncommon for films from the 80s. Yeah, for sure. I, I mostly I just think that this movie is a really fascinating artifact. I always think it's fascinating to look at these franchises that have gone on forever and go back to the original movie and just see how weird and idiosyncratic it inevitably is compared with the the endless sequels that kind of grabbed the most recognizable elements of it and repeated them over and over again. And this is like... It's a really rough vision in a lot of ways. It's and it's really specific in a lot of ways that I, I just find fascinating. Totally agree. It's interesting. To, for, I mean, I would have never. This was you know playing at the movie theater I worked at when I was a teenager. I would have never imagined that it would be something that would be considered as deeply, I guess, as we like to go on this podcast. It was. It was. You know, just kind of this silly throwaway thing that was kind of a novelty hit in the late 80s or the and, uh, and now, you know, this holds a lot of different fascinations, as you say. Well, why isn't it just a throwaway phenomenon from the 80s? Like, why do you think Chucky became such an enduring and changeable and evolving figure? Like, why are we still getting Chucky stories? What makes Chucky stand out? The evolving part is key to that, right? So the second and third movies are pretty much your um standard sequels where they're where they're just kind of playing more or less on on what had come before i mean they're not as not as good the third one in particular is not is not good and then bride of chucky comes along at a time when uh, there was a wave of of hong kong filmmakers starting to find their way in hollywood and they and they got one named, uh, director named ronnie Yu to do bride of chucky and he just amped everything up style wise uh don mancini i think uh really started to steer the series in a much more camp direction uh uh, uh, jennifer tilly was added uh, to the cast and was a really important part as bride of chucky she's 
terrific and, and eventually just became it, it, it started to become embraced by the by the lgbtq community it was kind of that's where mancini sort of comes from and he just kind of he basically kind of just took the series where he wanted to take it and and so it was able to evolve and uh and become something much different from where it started you know so because if you just do this formula again and again it doesn't last more than those first three films i don't think it needed to do something different and and he kind of found a way to 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 do that yeah brian chucky is the only one of those later ones i've seen i should really catch up with the other ones they sound fun but you're right it is it is this like perfect collision between you know camp horror and and this hong kong sensibility it was it was um and, and you know ronnie was being a very uh stylish director as well he didn't always have the best luck in hollywood his first hollywood film warriors of virtue which i believe is about i know i've seen it i believe it's about you know sort of a teenage mutant ninja turtles thing but with kangaroos and not not great <laughs> but you know that that's that was one of the good ones I mean, I, I think if one of the other things that would make it long lived, I think Brad Dourif's performance as Chucky is pretty key. Uh, it's it's menacing, but also you know there's a vulnerability to it in a in a weird way. You don't like Chucky, but but at the same time he has that kind of Freddy Krueger charismatic killer thing going on. After a while, you kind of want to see him get up to his tricks, even though he's this horrible, murderous little uh, uh, kill toy. There's this weird conflict between having the magical power to call upon a demon and defy death and being so impotent as to A, be dying in the first place and need that and B, not have anything to to put yourself in but a doll. <laughs> I, I think there's maybe almost a camp element with that from the start that just kind of takes me to a very Disney's Aladdin, you know, phenomenal cosmic power, itty bitty living space kind of place. <laughs> it's just sort of hilarious in a way that like I have the magical power to become immortal. But I got to do it by sticking myself in a, a really awful floppy looking doll. Those things, those Chucky dolls do not look well made or well designed. And I, I think that's actually part of the fun here. Before we wrap up, I do just want to real quickly return to the whole Cabbage Patches inspiration point uh, and point out that there was another sort of big toy of the era that has been acknowledged as an inspiration for Chucky, which is the My Buddy doll. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and to a lesser extent, the, the kid sister. Uh, maybe kid sister is more of a Megan uh, inspiration. But, you know, I think like maybe a sort of a notable difference there is that Cabbage Patch dolls were, uh, you know, you were adopting them. They were your babies. There was a parental sort of connotation that, you know, the classic baby doll there. Whereas the My Buddy, like, this is my friend, you know, and, and visually, I think that Chucky is evoking the My Buddy doll a lot more than a Cabbage Patch, but certainly the, the sort of the mania around uh, the, the good guy doll is very much from the Cabbage Patch yeah, I think you're exactly right there. And I, I do want to get into the commercial that we see at the beginning of the movie and the way it's it's specifically selling a kind of companionship that you're not supposed to get from like a human being or that it's implied you can't get from a human being. Like instead, here's a perfect companion. It's one that you kind of control. But that gets so much into uh, into crossovers with Megan, it's, which is so expressly drawing on the same thing, right down to uh, an ad at the beginning that evokes the same thing, that I think we should probably save all of that for connections. So I, I don't want the audience to think that we're not getting to or thinking about those ideas, but we're going to save them for next time. 
In the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion uh, and anything else in the world of film. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and with other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. time for feedback. But before we get to that, we should pause to remind everyone to listen to Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Campanar and Josh Larson. Like us, they just released their top 10 movies of 2022 episode, which veers off into a lively discussion of Damien Chazelle's Babylon. Also, this is your last call for Adam and Josh's annual wrap party, which will take place in New York on January 14th. Tickets are now on sale at filmspotting.net. We've still got some letters in the hopper about Todd Field's Tar, which continues to be a big conversation starter and likely will be again once Oscar nominations come out in January 25th. Uh, Keith, can you read this letter for us, please? Yes, I can. Liam writes, I just finished your episode about Tar, and you mentioned the Kubricki connections. I think these bonds go much deeper when you consider how Field got his filmmaking start, working on Eyes Wide Shut as an actor, and then getting his first feature produced by Kubrick's longtime associate, Leon Vitale. Field has talked about his time on that film a lot when it comes to the making of Tar. To me, however, the connections run even deeper with Eyes Wide Shut, a film that also has themes of status, infidelity, and watching your reputation erode. Both films depict the precipitous fall of high society people who revolve their lives around their careers. There's also an element of masquerade to each. For Dr. Bill, this is literal, but there's a late film revelation about Lydia Tar that shows how much Tar has hidden about herself already. Beyond that, the relationship to family is quite similar. Both are distant from their spouses. Both have a daughter they love but barely see. Both come from a background that seems less prosperous than they live in now. I've been mulling these two movies over since I saw Tar, and I'm certain I'll pick up more on a rewatch. Something that has been true for Eyes Wide Shut is that film goes up my Kubrick ranking. As one added fun fact, Kate Blanchett has a cameo on Eyes Wide Shut as the voice of the woman in the orgy. Who knew? I didn't. I didn't. Wow, That's amazing. That? <laughs> I did not either. That is so great. Which I, I find even more hilarious, given that she's the voice of the the monkey in uh, Guillermo <laughs> del Toro's Pinocchio. Like, does Kate Blanchett just have a whole side career, like doing I don't know uh, Frank Welker level uh, grunts and animal noises that we just never knew about? She's got range. <laughs> she's got. I had no idea about this. I'm blown away by this whole this uh, fun fact. I didn't knew nothing about it. I do love this uh, email though, and it, it actually it makes me kind of regret not doing uh, not doing Eyes Wide Shut <laughs> bearing because <laughs> Eyes Wide Shut is another film that's, that's kind of moved up in my own estimation of Kubrick's work. I think it's pretty major and just one of those films that's just you know endlessly you know involving and fascinating and full of different things you can analyze. Um, so uh, I, I I like it. All of this, uh, honestly, comes as a surprise to me. I had not compared the movie in any way with Eyes Wide Shut, conceptually or or narratively or thematically. So I, I think this is just a really interesting comparison. It, it is. It is. It really is. It, I mean, I, it, the connection is so hard for me to make because I, I, I just feel like there's something so specifically male about there's like, like a certain male obsession happening with tom cruise and eyes wide shut and it's, i i just i can't connect those characters as well in the way that they think and the way that they operate but maybe i should i don't know should i should i are they are they do they have more in common than i think i mean i kind of think they do the fact that lydia is a lesbian and is 
I mean, she's she's specifically identified as somebody who's in a career that women are not normally in. She's doing uh, something that women don't normally get to do, which is kind of couch casting like she's she's holding the reins over a highly prestigious positions in the world of art by making them contingent on sexual favors like that's that's a pretty traditionally male role i think that there's a lot of kind of like gender tension around her and the the things that she's doing that identify her as as male rather than female uh, and i i think that's all very deliberate Okay, I, I I know. Here's the big distinction, though, for me between these characters is that is that Bill is is an outsider uh, in a way. I mean, even though he is he has wealth and he has some status, he cannot get access to the sorts of places that, as we can see, that Lydia targets and anything she wants. She is on the top of the world. She could, uh, to the point where she is, you know, abusing that privilege immensely. Whereas whereas Tom Cruise's character and and Eyes Wide Shut is trying with immense frustration to gain access to places that he cannot get access to uh despite todd field <laughs> uh giving him the password F- fidelio that only gets him so far <laughs> into the origin yeah, he doesn't so, get the so, second password that's that's what's the problem right yeah Am I remember yeah. this movie correctly just try abc one two three you know that's a, that works for a lot of <laughs> a lot of people password one I, I mean, I agree with you there. I think for me, I and I have not seen Eyes Wide Shut since it came out, but from what what sticks with me most about it, it just seems to me like Bill's whole role in this film is as an explorer. Like he's out looking for something. He's out kind of fumbling his way through this environment. And some of the point of Tar is that she's made it. And she's she is in all of these places and then she's being forced out. They're just it feels to me that like they're on opposite journeys. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I think the identification that they're both kind of coming from the same class and they're they're falling from a position of grace, I I think, is a good point of comparison. Totally would have been a good one. We we like the contrast, too, on the show would have been a good one. Let's do it over. Let's do a third episode. Wait, I think we probably have more show. to say about Tar. We probably could fill a whole other episode. We really could, actually. And, and, and movies, and movies are going to get bad, guys. It's going to become They're the Tar real, cast. Real bad for a while. <laughs> nope, not me. With my with a publication of my uh, piece about how Tar and Marcel the Shell with Shoes On are the exact same movie, I have finished comparing things with Tar forever. <laughs> so our, our pairing of Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion with uh, its direct inspiration, The Last of Sheila, was also drawing some commentary. Uh, Scott, you want to read this one? Uh, sure. Eli writes, I'm really looking forward to Glass Onion and I love Ryan Johnson, but I was possibly not as big a fan of Knives Out as everyone else. I'm not sure if you're supposed to be sympathetic to Christopher Plummer, but I thought he was kind of a monster. He infantilized his family, and then when they are totally dependent on him, we are supposed to loathe them for that dependency. What exactly is so evil about your rich grandfather paying for your college? I think if Ryan Johnson isn't careful, he's going to get the same rap De Palma got as a Hitchcock impersonator. Although with him, it's going to be Sleuth, Death Trap, etc. Those are kind of two different thoughts there. So maybe we'll address one at a time. Or should I address, keep going here? I, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I feel like this letter is directly uh, meant to antagonize you, Scott. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Both of its points. Okay, so, so well, let me start with the first one. Uh, with Christopher Plummer, I, I, I do think you're supposed to be sympathetic to Christopher Plummer. I think that his family has disappointed him immensely, and I think you can see why. I don't know. I, I think to say that he's infantilized his family 
is a bit of a stretch because we don't know that family dynamic. We can guess at it, but we are catching up with him right you know, at the end of his life, we we don't know uh, what made his family, you know, into the into the horrible people that they are. But but that's the way the way it goes. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't. I didn't feel that way. I feel like there's a you know, and, and of course his actions uh, ultimately of leaving his estate to the nurse who's caring for him, who has a kind heart. Uh, to quote uh, Benoit Blanc, is is uh, you know, is a good indicator of his, his values and what are the values of, of the film. So I, I don't know. I, I don't really, I didn't really see it that way at all. And there's a, there's a moment when I rewatched this film recently with my daughter with Knives Out, the original Knives Out, where, where uh, Christopher Plummer just gives a look to Anna de Armas to just share kind of a moment that was just so touching. I mean, it's such a beautiful performance. I don't know. I can't, I just can never, I could never see Christopher Plummer as a, as a monster after that, but may, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, on the they second infantilize himself is my, my theory there. Those, those are awful. Those are awful kids. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's a, you, you get, you, you have a lot of money and sometimes that's what happens. You think you, you think you, well, first of all, you think you've, you've earned it all, <laughs> which is the, the problem. Almost all of them have in common, right? That things that were just handed to them, they've, they've earned and other, other people who want a piece of it are not, uh, not deserving. There's also a difference between your rich grandfather paid for college and yeah. your rich grandfather is still paying for what you're pretending is college, but is actually just a scam to get you money. I mean, am right. I remembering that no, detail? You, no, you're wrong? right. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's correct. I think there's just uh, like I I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with a relative who's who's well off paying for your college, especially in an environment where college debt can be crippling and where being able to afford college changes your your entire life's earning potentials. But everybody in this movie is kind of defined by the fact that they're expecting more no matter what they get it isn't enough and they're mad about it they're they're mad about being dependent on him but they've made themselves dependent on him by not doing anything except sitting around waiting for him to give them more money like it's it's the entitlement that's the issue here not the fact that they're in a rich family or that he's done stuff for them in the past yeah and I guess on the second point, the one where he says he thinks uh, Ryan Johnson isn't careful, he's going to get the same kind of rap to Palma got as a Hitchcock impersonator. I would say that <laughs> that uh, uh, Ryan Johnson would, would should feel pretty great if uh, he got compared <laughs> to Brian De Palma, who's who's, uh, who's an all timer for me. So I, I I and I'm going to imagine that Ryan Johnson would feel that way as well. Um, and then I also also say that that. You know, he's just done these two whodunits. He's got a third one that he's going to do. Uh, he did many films before, or a few films, I guess, before Knives Out that were, were not whodunits. It's just a genre that he he finds a lot of fun, and that he's he his he's very good at doing that kind of plotting of 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 working that kind of narrative architecture. And I think when he's done with it, he'll be done with it and move on to something else. That's what I'm. That's what I'm gonna guess. I don't. I, I don't see Knives Out movies as being the start of a whodunit cycle that will never end for him. But if you, if it does, then maybe that's not going to be, maybe that'll be disappointing. I mean, I think also the, the knives out movies are the only kind of homages he's done that are like really whodunits. Like, like brick is much more noir and the upcoming poker face is much more of a, I mean, we know who done it. That's sort of, it's a Columbo type of premise where we know who did it and we, we watch it get figured out. So, you know, I think the fact that he is playing with like different textures of these sleuth narratives, for me anyway, I think kind of absolves him of any sort of, you know, accusations of repeating himself. 
Yeah, I also think that Knives Out and Glass Onion, while they're both whodunits and an ensemble, you know, semi comedies are very different textually, tonally, thematically in, in terms of their aims, in terms of just everything about the the performances and, and what they're aimed at. Maybe to Glass Onion's detriment, there's certainly a lot of people that are found it, you know, boring and or angering because it wasn't exactly like Knives Out. Maybe that's selling them short. Like there are a lot of criticisms of this film that I've heard that I don't disagree with, but I can understand where people would get to. But a lot of them fundamentally come down to the fact that these are very different movies, which, you know, does kind of fly in the face of the idea of like, oh, now this is this is all he's doing now is these completely identical movies. Uh, it's just it's very different. To be fair, Eli hadn't yet seen Glass Onion when he wrote this this letter. This so. is true. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've torn Eli down. <laughs> Apologize. <laughs> please, please, Eli, Eli writes in a lot. We we, we please, love when Eli please, writes in. Please Thank write you. us letters, uh, and then I can so I can absolutely rip, rip, you, to sh- rip you to shreds. Uh, so apologies for that, Eli. You you struck a chord. This is an excerpt from a longer email, and uh, Eli may have a lot more thoughts. I I am curious how Glass Onion ends up comparing, especially since the issue of Christopher Plummer uh, potentially being a monster because he's the rich guy that that doles out favors and then resents uh, how people respond to them. It feels like it's very directly addressed and, and kind of reversed in Glass Onion, where I really don't think you're meant to sympathize with the equivalent there. So I'm, I'm very, very curious how that movie lands comparatively for Eli. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations uh, so we can chew them over and then ask you even more questions about them. If you feel inclined, uh, if you're feeling brave, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we will finally address the burning threat of emergent technology via another evil doll horror movie, Megan. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, if your child tells you his dead father sent somebody from heaven to inhabit a doll to play with him, maybe consider just skipping straight to the part where you burn the doll and get the kids some therapy. (laughs) 